Welcome to Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer, where cancer survivors, caregivers, and others touched by cancer share their stories. The Max Mallory Foundation presents this podcast in honor and memory of Max Mallory, who died at age 22 from testicular cancer. I'm your host, Joyce Lofstrom, a young adult and adult cancer survivor, and Max's mom. Hi, this is Joyce, and with me today is Deborah Bacall. And Deborah is a researcher uh, on men's health and testicular cancer and prostate cancer, but I will let her fill in the details on all of this. So, uh, Deborah, I'm so glad you could join me today. Thank you for having me, Joyce. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about your area of study. And I know it's medical anthropology, and you've also combined you know, medicine with anthropology. So I think that's a good place to start to just explain that to us. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm doing a PhD specifically in medical anthropology, and it's a specific area within anthropology that focuses on health systems, illness narratives, um, cultural manifestations of illness. And it takes anthropological um, methodologies, so ethnographies, uh, participant observation, a lot of qualitative, so qualitative and layman terms or interviews or uh, field notes, um, qualitative approach to understanding illnesses and health amongst particular or specific area of the population or groups of people. So you mentioned interviews, so you probably get to meet a lot of interesting people as you do this, which I know we'll get into as we talk about it. So that's a good segue, I guess, to your actual research and the study that you're doing as part of your PhD work. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Sure. So I began a little bit about specific, just to touch on my background. Sure. I um, first wanted to study uh, pharmacy because I was really interested in sort of the mechanisms of how and why people got sick and stayed sick and how medicine helped them to recover from that. And as I went along in that career, I realized that I was really interested in the sociocultural, historical, or non-medical impacts or influences on why people got sick and stayed sick. And that led me into anthropology. And I ended up getting a master's in social epidemiology, which is epidemics, which I think most of us are now familiar with the whole pandemic. It's yeah. sort of large uh, groups of people getting sick based on one type of disease or many multiple d- diseases. And then that obviously led me into doing a PhD in medical anthropology. And I initially was starting to look at um, my inter- my particular interest is looking into par- populations that don't utilize health services quite often and Initially, I wanted to look at mental health amongst um, migrant men in Spain, specifically where I'm based now. And I realized that there's quite a bit of research based on that area, and there's a lot of information. So I wanted to look into areas that are not really touched upon or haven't been touched upon. And through a long, winding road, I ended up uh, researching my now dissertation, um, testicular and prostate cancer, because there is actually very little information from a qualitative perspective on this um, particular topic. And though some might argue with me that um, there is information about it, it uh, this particular group of people in this particular illness, say in Australia or the UK, the US, ironically enough, there isn't that much knowledge or uh, research done in other areas um, within Europe, say, for example, or other developed nations, as they call it. So my interest 
is to explore that and to bring more understanding into men specifically in Spain, but in general on this particular area of prostate and testicular cancer. I think that's very interesting and also needed. I don't know the details about Spain, but as you say, it's an area that I think across the world hasn't been studied enough about you know, men's health and testicular cancer and prostate cancer. So I congratulate you for doing it. I think it will be so helpful uh, to all of us um, when you have your, your research and what you found. And I read this in an article, but can, is, is there any background? And you said a long and winding road to get to this study area, but any particular reason why you picked prostate and testicular cancer or just happened to be an area to go for? I feel that like with any of these, with most, I, I don't know, I always hear these stories of like, you never, you, you think you're going to be doing one thing and all of a sudden something else pops up and the least thing that you were expecting. And this is exactly what happened with me. I was, I realized early on when I had uh, started my PhD that perhaps mental health was going to be trying to find a specific niche, which would have involved, for example, having to learn a specific dialect of Wolof, which is a, the language, official language of Senegal, because there's many Senegalese migrants living in Spain, particularly in Barcelona. Um, I would have needed to learn that language in order for me to get a better understanding of the cultural dynamics within mental health amongst this particular group of people. And I realized that it would take much longer than I um, anticipated to finish my PhD. And also there's already so much information in that field. So I was speaking with somebody whom I'd met at a conference and he said, well, you know, there aren't many people speaking about prostate or not many people looking into prostate and testicular cancer. And perhaps you should look into that. And ironically, it made me realize that my father actually many years prior to that conversation I was having had been diagnosed and is a prostate cancer survivor. And so at that point I thought, oh, wow, that's true. You know, I don't really have any apart from my own father who's who I knew of who had been diagnosed or experienced um, this particular cancer or even anyone around my age group um, who had been diagnosed or were survivors of testicular cancer and as I did a preliminary research a literature research I found that not only was is little known about it but there's little qualitative research that's looking into it yes there exists a lot of research that are based on uh, service use or um, spousal support in page or family or spousal uh, support or caregivers for patients who had testicular prostate cancer. But there are very few studies that have actually focused on men just themselves and how they utilize, say, support groups to understand the illness and work through their diagnosis and their treatment. Naturally, since that was an area that hasn't really been uh, investigated, I kept digging and digging and digging. And the more that I got further into it, the more I realized there was actually a very important and necessary area that needs to be explored and understood, especially from the male perspective and not from, say, the healthcare or the caregiver's perspective, which are very, very important perspectives to have. But yet again, um, there, were very, there are very little studies that are just directly asking men, how do they experience their treatment and their illness and how do they get through it? and what services and um, support groups they used to to pass through that. Okay. I'm just thinking about the whole idea of support groups because I've 
I like them and I have been to several throughout my life, but um, I'm also a woman. So I have you know a different perspective on that, I guess, but um, that's a good kind of, uh, again, another segue to some of your research and listening to the voice of the patient. Is there, or are there any comments or insights that you can share about some of the conversations that you've had with patients? Sure. I think um, overall the overarching theme that seems to pop up, whether I'm speaking to testicular patient, testicular cancer patients or prostate cancer patients, which in and of themselves are two separate age groups. So when thinking about the dynamics and the sort of outcomes of the treatments or quality of life or the impacts on quality of life, the treatments in different age groups are going to be impacting uh, these two age groups quite differently. But yet the common theme between them is this sense of isolation which I found that when they use, when they, uh, many of them, men who, or not many, sorry, some of the men who uh, used or participated in support groups spoke about how uh, having this shared experience with other men who'd gone through the same uh, treatment and diagnosis as them created less of a feeling of isolation. Whereas very many men, many men um, are not accessing or don't even are not even aware that uh, social support groups or organizations that are focused on their particular cancer exist. And so they have the sense of sort of trudging through information and having to find information on their own, not really knowing anybody that they can turn to that has had that sort of experience. Or even if they do know a few people, um, their information or their experiences are very limited. So it's the sense of um, having to go along this this trajectory of their diagnosis and treatment alone. And yes, it comes with, you know, if they are lucky to have a spouse that's very involved and very supportive, that is an important factor in helping them uh, cope with the diagnosis. But even then it's this feeling of, well, okay, my wife or my sister or my girlfriend or whomever um, may understand what I'm going through. It may be empathetic, but they are, um, lack of sympathy they may be sympathetic but they're very there's a lack of empathy as well um because it's not something that they particularly experience themselves because it's an illness it's a male's illness and so there's a sense of isolation i feel that it was a very common thread that linked um both groups uh, and i think from the some of the men i've interviewed for the podcast it's the same thing as trying to find someone that they could talk to or just feeling alone. Uh, and I know in some of our previous conversations, Deborah, we've talked about, or at least, uh, you know, we mentioned there are many, at least in the U.S., which is where I am, many support, not support groups, but organizations out there online, but everybody's uh, for testicular cancer, but everyone's kind of doing their own thing, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, and I think your research would probably not probably would help this is getting everybody together, trying to speak more consistently with one voice, but that's just my editorial comment here. So <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. I mean, it is, it's very um, fragmented in the sense that it's great that there are many organizations and there's a lot of awareness. And in fact, I'm right now uh, writing up an article, hopefully to get published soon. And my argument is that despite there being so many uh, organizations there, each one, and rightfully so, has set their sort of has a specific agenda or objective, even if it's based on the same cancer, um, prostate or testicular cancer. But yet, it's 
fragmented and and I feel that if in some way that they could all join forces or there could be one central location where one could go to to access say like a database where they could say okay you google prostate cancer support groups or testicular testicular cancer support groups and you're able to find a database that has maybe an organization in your area or um, all the organizations that exist if say you want to see what they're offering or maybe you could join now that everything seems to be online anyways you can join the support groups that are via zoom um, and yeah I'm, I'm hoping that there's much more awareness in trying to unify <laughs> these groups right. there are lots <laughs> no I think and you summarized it quite well and I th- hopefully that is something that will happen down the road uh, sooner yeah. than later my next question is around the patient voice again and I'm going to make this comment based on my experience with my son, Max, who died from testicular cancer. But I always found or thought that watching some of the care throughout his seven-month journey, that uh, protocol took over instead of personalization. And that's a very general comment. Um, but, you know, I... I there were times I felt that we weren't listened to or he wasn't listened to. And I, I'm wondering from your research, if you uh, have any thoughts on, do you think patients are really heard during their cancer treatment or how much do you think they might be heard? Oh, um, I, I don't want to, you know, like the doctors and the, the healthcare practitioners, because I think their role is very important and vital, obviously, for the treatment and care of any patient. I just feel that there are so many different pieces that play into the health outcome of any person who has an illness. But in particular, because I think in general, we have a tendency to overlook or perhaps not put any importance to the, so the quote-unquote suffering of male patients. And so when it comes to a male patient or any patient in that matter um, discussing their particular experience with uh, their illness or their diagnosis, it can sometimes be overlooked from a healthcare practitioner's perspective because the healthcare practitioner essentially is trying to treat the body and trying to make sure that the person who's getting, who has the diagnosis is coming out of that diagnosis alive and as well as they can be based on whatever their illness is. And I think that the voice of the patient, particularly in testicular and prostate cancer, is very essential because there are, at the moment, many protocols and guidelines that are based on screening or um, diagnosis or treatments. And there are very little protocols or guidelines on maintaining or incorporating the particular perspective and experiences passed through men or men men that pass through those types of uh, treatments or diagnosis, excuse me. And I think um, more has to be done in incorporating their voice into the protocols or service use or um, recommendations given to uh, doctors or nurses that are involved in uh, testicular prostate cancer patients' care. Um, to allow them to understand that it's not just the body, but it's also the person behind it that is carrying this disease that needs to be taken into consideration. 
I think that's a good summary of it's more than just your body. It's your whole, uh, it's your mindset. It's your psyche. It's, it's so many things that go into it. And I, I want to emphasize too, I was not, uh, disparaging the physicians who took care of Max yeah. or anything. I, yeah. and it can, it can come across like that. I know it when I say that, but it's, it's just something that I not as, you know, I'm not a medical person, so I don't know about all the ways that things are um, decided and so forth, but you know, I'm also the mom. So I think the mom has a, a perspective too, as taking care of their kid or their son. So, um, but anything else from your research that you want to, point out or share with us? Yeah, I think one other thing that I, I I feel that this is something that comes up a lot in any in any of my experiences, particularly working within the medical anthropology field, is that um, the information that's provided to patients and is needs to be not as a well, the best way to say it is uh, provided for a lay person. So not be scientifically heavy in its vocabulary and try to explain uh, the availability of treatments, the types of treatments, the side effects um, available to the, to the patient in a way that the patient can understand. And in my experiences of attending different support groups or um, conferences or seminars based on targeting testicular and prostate cancer patients who attended those events so that they could find out more information about their diagnosis and their treatment options, I found that many of them came out of it saying, that was so nice, you know, I finally can understand exactly what the doctors are doing, what may or may not happen to me. I now have this artillery of information that's going to be useful for me should I need it later in the future, or even that will help me uh, make my decision more, well, make, make a better decision because it's more informed. And I feel that if we, there should be more involvement of the patients within um, that scope because it helps alleviate a lot of the unnecessary stress. But also, I think that there's a separation between what the doctors know and what the patient should or shouldn't know. And when you involve, um, especially in testicular or prostate cancer, because it's so little information is readily available and awareness and promotion is few and far between, especially in, in other parts of Europe that isn't the UK. Um, that it's really useful to have that available to the patients. Interesting. I yeah, that's very good. Um, and I think understanding what the diagnosis is or what the outcome could be. Uh, I had that same experience when I had thyroid cancer at twenty five. I thought I was mm. going to die, and yeah. I had a very localized kind of cancer. And the night before I went home, a, a a female medical student came in with her textbook and sat down and showed me the picture and explained Absolutely. everything to me. And it wasn't until she did that, the yeah. surgeon couldn't do it. And it's, you know, it's, everybody's got different skills and, but she helped me a lot. And it's like what you just said of, of being able to understand in lay terms, what yeah. someone's explaining to you. So. Yeah. Um, and I find that sometimes in the consultations, of course, again, the, the practitioner, the urologist, whoever is treating it, the man or the yeah, the men, um, they don't have time to go to get into the nitty gritty of exactly what's going to happen. It's more about, okay, so these are your options based on your test results. For example, this is what we can or cannot do. And so the patient goes out thinking, well, I don't really, I don't know if I really got any more information than I had going in. And I found uh, it 
specifically when I attended a, a particular prostate cancer seminar that was given by urologists but was geared towards um, the patients, they showed an actual video of the surgery. And I thought that, you know, most people, most of the men were just going to be, it was quite graphic, you know, because it was a live surgery. Right. And I was expecting a lot of, you know, bad or negative reactions. But in fact, many of them, when I interviewed them afterwards, were very grateful that they could actually see exactly what was going to happen. And they felt less afraid going into their surgery themselves. And I, and I really was shocked, actually. I thought, oh, wow. I mean, maybe that is it. Maybe having more information is useful. And it seems like something that's so obvious when you say it. But sometimes people, I think we take this assumption that um, because there's a stereotype that men don't really uh, are not proactive about their care or their health or they wait until the last minute to go um, get treatment or go speak to their doctor about something that's wrong with their bodies. And when, in fact, um, and it is sort of out of sight, out of mind, the less I know, the better. But in fact, I saw that that was actually the reverse. The more information that they were provided with, the better that they were able to understand and cope with their treatment and their diagnosis. So, I think that makes sense, especially for men and their testicles. I mean, if you yeah. have to have one removed, then it's like, what's going to happen to me? And I think mm. seeing it, as you just described, could be very helpful or would be helpful. Sure, yeah. And I know you're still recruiting participants for your study, so can you tell us how people can find you, contact you if they want to participate? Sure. I am. Um, they can. The easiest way uh, for anyone to contact me is through my uh, Proteca, my studies um, Instagram account, and that's the underscore Enigman, E-N-I-G-M-A-N, and they can direct message me on Instagram, or they can also um, email me at Deborah.Bekele, B-E-K-E-L-E, at U-R-V dot C-A-T. Okay, that's wonderful. And URV is your university, correct? Just uh, I did not mention you were in Spain, so um, yes. I wanted to call that out because I think it's wonderful that you could join us. So, yeah, uh, no, I was I was quite surprised that you reached out, but yeah, it's it's a, a my I'm at University of Oviedo, Chile, in um, okay. Spain. Okay. So I know the last question I have is one that isn't fair to ask you, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, when do you do you have an idea of when you might be done with your study? And uh, just I'm asking because I'd love to have you come back when that's done at any time and tell us about your results. Sure, um, I tend I'm hoping to submit by the end of this year, so sort of mid December. Fingers crossed that everything goes through, but yeah, um, my submission date will be then, and then it'll be up for revision and, and the whole post-submission process for a doctoral thesis. So. Okay, so we have to, uh, I'd forgotten about that, so that's additional time, but the fact that you get it done, I think, is the big thing, so for, at least I would think so, but um, well, I, again, appreciate you being here, Deborah, and sharing all of this with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer from the Max Mallory Foundation. We have a website, and it's at maxmalloryfoundation.com, where you can learn more about testicular cancer, donate, and also send your ideas for guests on the podcast. And for spelling, Mallory is M-A-L-L-O-R-Y. 
Please join me next time for Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer. 